This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on a move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 217. Well, just ahead, Uber. Look, a decade of left turns, right turns, U-turns, wrong turns. Uber turns a profit. Finally. And AMD puts up a weird quarter. We'll dig into that. And how cloud software specialist Elastic quietly masters the search business. We're going to talk to CEO Ashutosh Kulkarni. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With Era, customize your company watch list to track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. All right, welcome to the Drill Down Podcast. I'm Corey Johnson. We're going to explain the business stories behind some stocks on the move. Joining me as always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, Corey, glad to have you. Corey, how are you braving this heat? Uh, it's great. We heat. love it. We love some heat. You like that heat up there? You're still no, in up, still, upstate New York? I'm in New, I'm in New York. It's, it's, it's plenty hot here. San Francisco is the only cold place in the country. I'll be back there soon enough. But uh, the market's hot. The market uh, is hot. Really interesting moves in a lot of stocks. Um, it seems like uh, the rising tide is lifting all ships right now, but we've got some really interesting stories from recent earnings reports and some sound from those CEOs, starting with. Well, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> uh, let's start with Advanced Micro Devices AMD. AMD trades under AMD and shares have dropped over 4% in the past 24 hours. Still, they've gained 75% since the start of 2023, and AMD shares are 13% higher over the past 12 months. 75% this year. Yeah. What a fantastic move yeah. in the stock that was so long and and uh, and also ran. But the quarter, uh, and they just reported not really pretty. Uh, revenue took a big hit, down 18% year over year. Despite that move in the stock, $5.4 billion in revenue. Margins way down. So the profits really got crushed down 54%, um, uh, sorry, 44% from the previous year. So uh, again, revenue's down about 20%, profits down about 40 more than 40%. That's bad. But if you zoom out a little bit and look at what's going on in the world of semiconductors, well, um, their, their business is really divided into what they're selling into PCs and what they're selling into the uh, into the cloud, into, into the into the server business. And uh, you see a real big difference there. And of course, the excitement around AMD this year is the notion that their chips are that do so well in the server business and the data center business will do particularly well when those computing uh, tasks that uh, AI call for are sent to the cloud and sent to AMD chips. And new chips and new platforms that are going to get launched later this year uh, will be a great success for them. So as is so often the case with semiconductors, they don't even look at the quarter that just happened. We're looking forward at what's about to happen. And look, big changes in the data center business. Look, that's one hell of a dynamic market, right? 
AMD CEO Lisa Su. So um, you're absolutely right. You know, it's a very dynamic market right now um, in the data center. Uh, we certainly see, you know, let me go through some of the pieces. So on the positive side, uh, we certainly see that acceleration of AI demand. Um, from our standpoint, we see it in a couple ways. Um, you know, we have a number of design wins in AI deployments as, you know, sort of the the, uh, the CPU that uh, goes with uh, GPUs as well as other accelerators. So in the head nodes, we've seen that positive on the CPU side. Uh, we've also seen um, some strong interest in our MI250 accelerator, uh, which is currently shipping right now. And uh, we see very strong pull on the MI300 accelerators that are um, starting production in the fourth quarter. So those are the positive market dynamics as we go into the second half of the year. Um, you know, we also see um, some of the softer cloud uh, spend that is happening outside of AI as some of the cloud vendors are optimizing, you know, sort of their um, their CapEx. And enterprise, I would say, is still on the weaker side. But with all of that in place, um, we are expecting a large ramp in the second half for our data center business and weighted towards the fourth quarter. And we are um, still looking at a zip code of, let's call it 50% plus or minus um, second half to first half. So it's it's a lot of, it's a big ramp, but... Um, you know, when we look at all the components, I think that the customer pull is certainly there and, and it's exciting to be in this part of the industry. So there you have it. Big ramp, big changes uh, uh, in, in their new processors really queued up to go into the uh, uh, data center business to do AI computing. And for that reason, I think there's so much excitement about AMD's stock because there's a belief that there's a lot of AP, AI workloads about to happen and they're ready to take that work. Corey, what's your next drill down? Did someone say beer? Did hold, you say beer? Hold my beer. What are we going to talk about now? You know that I don't drink beer? Uh, you're more of a wine guy, but I didn't know you did True, not drink but I beer. Liked, yeah, I just don't drink beer. But yeah. thank goodness for the people at Molson Coors Beverages. Lots of people are drinking beer. And it trades under TAP, T-A-P. Molson, Molson Coors trades under TAP, T-A-P. And T-A-P shares have dropped... 5% over the past five trading sessions, but have gained 25% in a year. What's going yeah, on? Yeah, so we, um, do you remember that I used to have a beer stein on the set at Bloomberg when I, when I did Bloomberg TV? I do not remember that. What show was well, this? It, it, was a, it was when we were doing Bloomberg West and uh, okay. I, it was good luck. I had a Fairport Brewing Company mug uh-huh. instead of a, I don't know, for, for my water on the set. It was water or tea. And, um, yeah, Bloomberg got really upset about that. At one point, they switched it during a show. Huh. It was ridiculousness. Literally, while I was on the air, they took my mug away and replaced it with a Bloomberg-themed mug. <laughs> you got to keep it on brand. You, well, And, and you got to make sure the anchors have something to worry about other than doing a show on live TV. It was really good good management. True. There. In any case, let's talk beer. So we talked beer last week, or I think two or three weeks ago, we talked about Constellation Brands. And I thought it was really interesting what was, what was the changes in that market that are happening here that I, I've never seen before, where uh, you've got a real big migration away from a certain type of, of brand, in particular a cheap beer, towards more extens- expensive beer. There was this great discussion, it's, it, which persists as if it's a social thing, that because of this one ad featuring a trans person, uh, people stopped drinking Bud Light and started switching to Modelo. In fact, there's a long-term trend uh, that's going on for the last few years of people drinking more and more expensive beer, which is not great if you're in the business of selling Miller Light and Coors Light, right? which are two of the big brands for Molson Coors. So Molson Coors came together in 2005. They reported sales were up 12%, um, which is which is pretty good. Their profits were vastly changed because they did a, had a mark-to-market in um uh, their commodities positions about $200 million. 
So they had a paper gain that looked really great. But uh, the cost of goods went down, right? So inflation down for Molson Coors, sales up, and still there was concern about how they reported the quarter because of softness in the beer industry. Now, yes, they have seen an increase in the sales for the first time in, in almost two years of both Coors and uh, Coors Light and Miller Light. But uh, really, you know, 1% or worse for those two brands in terms of year-over-year sales improvement off some um, worse, really bad numbers in recent years. Again, I said the last two years, last five years, you've seen sales declining in these two brands. So a little bit up in the most recent year, most recent quarter. And yet, concerns about changes in the beer industry. So says CEO Gavin Hattersley. Yeah, look, I mean, the U.S. industry in 2023 has been softer than, than, than expected. There are obviously a number of drivers behind that. Um, you know, they're on the West Coast, uh, particularly um, California, big big beer drinking market. We, we had some some really difficult weather conditions in the first part of the year, and, 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 and so that challenged the overall industry. And then I think it's true to say that uh, we've had higher than expected declines in the in the overall seltzer um, segment. Um, you know, our data would... From Sakana would would would, would suggest that there's actually been a slight improvement um, in Q2 when you compare it with um, with Q1 and, and an improvement um, from an overall industry point of view versus the second half of of, uh, of last year. Um, you know, we we do think that some of the bigger drivers of these trends are, are lifestyle choices. Um, some buyers shifting to to other uh, categories. Um, however, you know, core beer drinkers are incredibly loyal and have maintained their share of, of dollars and volume um, in, in in beer. So, you know, we whilst we have seen some some pretty seismic shifts across the industry, um, you know, fueled by the continued growth in, in Mexican imports and fabs, and, and obviously the the disruption in the ABR uh, portfolio. Um, our brands, Coors Light, Miller Light, growing industry share. Um, so, what really matters. Um, here for us is that more consumers are reaching for our beers um, versus our, our competitors' uh, beers, regardless of the of the segment um, that they are purchasing from. So there you have it. Um, competitors are uh, making some hay, and uh, um, uh, new brands coming into the market like Modelo from Constellation Brands really uh, kicking butt. Where Molson, Coors, Miller Lite, Coors Light, uh, Bud Light, all struggling. Do you have you ever drank beer? Have you ever been a beer drinker? I there was a t- once upon a time. Yeah, what kind of beer? Well, my friends growing up would drink really, really the cheapest beers you could possibly find. Well, yeah, that's what you do when you're growing up when you're a teenager. Well, I mean, I mean, uh, of legal age. <laughs> oh God, I, please! You know I've got four teenagers. I don't uh, need to know about all this. I don't need to remember. Yeah, yeah. Well, I went through a big Belgian beer phase, but I love Belgian beers. But I guess Molson Coors does not cater to that segment. Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at Uber. Uber. Uber uh, trades under Uber. U-B-E-R. And shares have gained 84% since the start of 2023. And Uber shares have gained 60% in a year. I didn't realize Uber was on such a tear. Yeah, uh, pandemic uh, uh, recovery. Yeah, um, and and leading to this momentous moment. I mean, I remember when this. I'm so old, but I no, I'm not that old. But I do remember covering this company when it was first launched. I do um, too. And, uh, I do too. And you know, and it is it is really a behemoth. It is a very very big global business. And finally, 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 their very first operating profit. 
Um, but the pace of growth of, of the top line for this business has really slowed down from the sort of return to the world that the post-pandemic uh, uh, period showed us with Uber. Now things have slowed down. Uh, but revenues were up 14% year over year, $9.2 billion. But here's the catch. It was the slowest growth rate they've seen since the first quarter of 2021. Huh. So things are not zooming along as they had just after the pandemic. Uh, but again, a profit, an operating profit of $300 million, $326 million. Uh, big deal. So if we dig a little bit deeper, number of active drivers up 33% in the second quarter. That's one of the important numbers we look at with this company. And the number of trips up 26% from a year ago. So a really strong quarter for this company. But what the CEO, uh, Dara Kashrahari, is that? I think that's how you pronounce it. I know the guy. I should know how to pronounce his name. But um, he had a lot to talk about at the conference call about Uber One, about selling memberships. Uh, now they have, do you know about this thing? This 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 Uber One, if you, you pay a membership, I think it's a, uh, uh, 10 bucks a month or a hundred bucks for the year. Um, and you get 5% off eligible rides and discounts and grocery and food deliveries. Um, the way I figure you got to spend about 200 bucks a month on rides and so on to break even on this thing. But nonetheless, uh, you get top rated drivers, uh, 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 as I mentioned, all kinds of other deals and deliveries and, and so on. Um, and they really see this as the key to locking in customers to a steady level of spending their busiest customers and keeping them from going to other services. Here is uh, Uber's CEO, Derek Kashrahari. We find that as we increase the choice, the various ways of transportation to consumers, um, regardless of whether it's low cost or high cost, uh, we drive um, engagement. Uh, the average customer who uses more than one product on Uber um, spend significantly more than the customer who, let's say, only orders UberX. Um, so I, I think that there's one set of activities that we have, which is just get you to buy multiple products, whether it's multiple mobility products or a combination of mobility delivery products, that drives engagement and frequency on the platform. The second area that we have is membership. And just mathematically, as we um, as we increase the number of members that we, of we have uh, that we have, as we increase membership retention and a higher gross bookings penetration of members on the platform, members book more. There they spend four times more, and the frequency is significantly higher. So mathematically, we will just get higher frequency as well. And then the third for us is low cost uh, and. If you look at our low-cost product, high-capacity vehicles, Moto, which are two-wheelers, Uber X Share, um, all of those products have very high frequency. They become a part of everyday life uh, for people. Often, they become the primary source of commute uh, for some of our audience, uh, and therefore, we do think that low-cost can be uh, a significant differentiator, but a significant driver of increasing frequency uh, around the globe. But I think it's all above, and that's why we're quite confident that we can keep increasing audience and frequency uh, and price to some extent on, on a comparable product-to-product -product basis over a long period of time. So there you go. They want to lock you down. Uber One is the real hope there to get uh, people using lots of Uber lots of the time. I'm not an Uber One uh, member. Yet, who knows? Maybe I'll yeah, check I'll it out. My way. All right, well, coming up next, we've got a really interesting look at a company that's built a really big business on search that you might not be aware of. They're doing a billion dollars in annual revenues, 
helping other companies with their search and making search work across the web. And yeah, big surprise, AI is a big part of this. We're going to talk to Elastic and the CEO, Ashutak Kukarni, right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. Welcome back to the Drill Down podcast. We are joined right now, as promised, by the CEO of Elastic. Ash Kulkarni joins us right now from San Francisco. And uh, Ash, glad to have you. Um, your company is very interesting. Um, uh, and I, I, sometimes I dread doing software stories, trying to explain what these companies do. But uh, you guys really, uh, it's its such an interesting product that you offer. How do you describe it in shorthand? Yeah, so I describe what we have as a search analytics platform. And uh, you know, the way we describe our mission is to help everyone find the insights that they're looking for that matter to them from their data in real time, at scale, um, and across all of their information. And just to give you some examples of what that might mean, um, you know, we typically tend to specialize with unstructured information. So that could be anything from uh, you know, Word documents to the kinds of log files that get emitted by systems um, to you know, information that you might have in just PDF documents, graphs, maps, uh, images, um, audio information, et cetera. Um, and the kinds of customers we work with you know, range everywhere from um, Uber that uses us to map um, driver with rider. Um, Booking.com will use us for all their inventory search. So when you go on their website and are looking for something, you know, whether it's a flight or what have you, it's elastic under the covers that's serving you the right information. Um, all the way to you know, observability, because when uh, uh, a site reliability engineer is trying to look through all of their information to understand whether there's anything that gives a indication of potential problems to ensure the uptime of their systems, you know, they rely on Elastic and even cybersecurity. Because cybersecurity tends to be a data problem, and it's about searching for that one little nugget of information. So what people refer to as security analytics to understand if there are signals in their data that give an indication of some ransomware attack that's about to happen, uh, some malware that's been injected somewhere, um, some behavioral detection of some um, anomalous behavior. So those are the kinds of use cases that uh, we are used for. You know, We are uh, just north of a billion in revenue and serve customers both in the private and public sector globally. Well, and I think the key thing there is that this is the, da- this is the private data of companies. And, and the ability to search that when 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 consumers or all of us use Google to search for something, we're looking through Google's database. But when companies have uh, either brand new, fresh data like a Booking.com, or companies have uh, accumulated data over over long periods of time that they want to keep as theirs as their secret sauce, uh, your products let them do that. Whether they want to keep that stuff in the cloud, or even some of them are so concerned about that data, they want to keep it uh, on private servers, but in fact want to make it um, searchable. That's exactly right. The, the big difference between us and uh, you know, the whole plethora of uh, analytics companies out there is we really specialize in unstructured information. We, we can deal with all data, but where we are absolutely the best out there is when it comes to unstructured information. And unstructured information is probably the fastest by orders of magnitude when you look at all the different data types 
that is growing because a lot of the user generated content, a lot of the machine generated content tends to be unstructured in nature. And all of this information is a business's private data, right? So they're never gonna put it up on the open internet. And so Google or Bing, their crawlers are never gonna get to it. And you will never be able to use those consumer search technologies for, a, you know, for your ability to mine and use your data for maximum value. And that's where we come in. So this is what we've specialized in. We've been around for about uh, 11 years now, coming up on 11 years. And the foundation of the company was in open source. Well, I want to get to that. So the, the open yeah. source aspect of this is so interesting too, because um, it, it brings the developers right in and helps the developers improve the basic levels of your product. Uh, and, it, and it's been a, a real, I think, under the covers, open source success story. It, it has been. I mean, we are, uh, we've had over 4 billion downloads of our software over the years. Uh, and Elasticsearch, which is the core foundation technology that underpins everything we do, uh, is probably one of the most widely known and widely utilized um, search analytics capabilities or data management capabilities out there. Um, and like you said, the community effect that it creates just creates this wonderful tailwind where people start to use Elasticsearch for all kinds of use cases. And that gives us the opportunity to then sell them value-added functionality in our premium tiers. Uh, and we also have a fully managed cloud service, Elastic Cloud, that now uh, accounts for over 40% of our, our revenue. And that's really been one of the, the key growth drivers. So yes, by all measure, I'd say uh, we are a good proof point that the open source model can be truly successful. So I want to talk about AI and I want to talk about um, large language models versus vector AI. And, I'm, and I'm, I have a basic understanding of large language models and I do not understand vectors. I'm going to ask you to explain that, but let me try to explain large language models briefly. And you can then tell me what a moron I'm in. The listeners already know what a moron I am. But uh, the, the large language model essentially takes uh, mountains of data and and then looks at the the prompt that a user might use, whether it's a visual one or let's let's say a chat GPT-like response, write me a three-paragraph story about a goldfish. And then the large language model, the, the guesses that the computer will come up with, with with the next word, the second word, and the third word, and the fourth word will be compared to that large language model until it comes out with the most likely um, ends of such sentences and, and the, those paragraphs in a certain order and comes up with something like that. But these large language models are often um, non-proprietary data, or at least the OpenAI would have us think so. That they're not just stealing um, a story about a goldfish from a children's book somewhere and not paying the copyright. But a vector um, uh, AI works differently. How does how does vector AI, which you guys utilize uh, increasingly, how does that work? Yeah, so so uh, you're absolutely right in that uh, large language models are predictive models, um, and for any kind of predictive model, you need to train it, and you need the the more uh, the larger the data sets that you can train them on, the better the predictive models are at really doing what you articulated, like what's the next word and the next word and so on. Um, but to your point, the only way you can gather that massive amount of data without creating all kinds of proprietary you know, uh, access that you shouldn't is effectively only by using information that's out there in the public domain. So OpenAI, much like uh, Bard from Google, uh, will you know, suck in all the public data that's available to them, and that's how these models have been trained. More importantly, these models are also effectively locked at a point in time, right? because you can keep updating them, but they have no access to real-time information on what's happening right now. Now, 
I'll give you a perfect example of where this becomes a bit of a problem, and I'll, I'll try and make it a little more concrete. So, you know, you mentioned earlier that you're in Rochester right now, um, and if you go to uh, ChatGPT um, and ask the question to ChatGPT, um, hey, I live in Rochester and I have a two-acre backyard and I want to build an irrigation system for my two-acre backyard, what do I need? Uh, you know, chances are ChatGPT is going to give you some decent information. Like it's going to tell you that, oh, it's two acres in Rochester. So it has a sense, you know, it can figure out what's the temperature range. Uh, and so it knows that you're going to need a certain number of uh, PVC pipes of a certain length that are temperature rated to be suitable for Rochester. It's going to tell you that if it's a two acre yard, it can calculate, you know, how many water regulators it needs. It can tell you how many sprinkler heads it, you need. What it won't know, though, is what does Home Depot sell in their store in Rochester, New York, from where you can go and pick these things up? And that becomes the gap. That becomes the gap in having information that's useful, but not immediately actionable. Now, imagine that you are a, uh, a home improvement store, like a Home Depot. Um, and these are just, you know, you can come up with all kinds of examples for any and every business. If Home Depot wants to give that same experience where when you come to their website and ask that same question in that same extremely human intuitive way, it gives you a response that says, well, you need three sprinkler heads. Here's the part number. You need like 80 feet of pipes. These are the ones that are rated for the right temperature requirements that you have. You need four water regulators or whatever. And then click here if you want all of this to be delivered to your home in the next 24 hours. Now that becomes the kind of experience where you go from just learning about something to be able to operationalize it. And you can imagine the kind of impact that that's gonna have on closing business faster, reducing the, the churn rates that websites see. And every business, doesn't matter whether you're in e-commerce, doesn't matter whether you're in you know, the legal field, manufacturing, transportation, you can imagine a way to deliver this kind of experience to your users if, you are able to connect your proprietary information to these large language models. And the way you do that is through something like Elasticsearch, because what we are able to do is we are able to suck in all of their proprietary information and they control it. So, you know, Elasticsearch will run within their environment. Like you said, it can be on public cloud or it can be in their private infrastructure. And then we can provide the specific context so for that question that was asked, and it was related to the irrigation system, we can quickly search within their data and say, for this question, the most relevant information that you need to pass as context to that large language model is this information about sprinkler heads, water regulators, et cetera. And that's what enables the large language model. And it doesn't matter if it's OpenAI or BARD, right to give you that full response. And why is that called vector? So uh, vector search is just one type of approach to give the appropriate context in real time from all your proprietary data to these large language models. And vectors work incredibly well in certain circumstances. So when you're dealing with um, things like images, you know what vectors let you do is it'll let you take information, information of any kind, and then turn it into you know, effectively vector embeddings. And these vectors are 
just dimensions, like different kinds of information about that particular image. It could be contrast, it could be uh, you know, uh, color density, it could be brightness, et cetera, but it could be patterns. Uh, it's effectively taking a piece of information and converting it into vectors that describe that piece of information around different dimensions. So vectors can be one way, and then you can search across those vectors in a vector database, like what Elasticsearch provides. Uh, but there are other techniques as well. There is textual search, there is semantic search, Semantic search is not about looking for textual patterns, it's about meaning. Like, are you uh, in that piece of text? Is there an implied meaning that is similar to what you are looking for? So there are all these different search techniques that often need to be combined to give you the best possible outcome and then pass that relevant context to the large language model. So vectors are a way, there are multiple other ways that we all, that we provide. To, to give that right contextual information to the large language model to then make its answers yeah. more relevant to your query. So interesting. Um, so let's talk about your business and how your business is going. Now that we've got a good understanding of what the business is and some of the customers and some of the opportunities uh, that are out there, your growth rate has been slowing down kind of year after year lately. Uh, what's going on there? So basically the, the biggest impact that we saw was um, a couple of quarters ago, when there was a clear tightening in the macroeconomic environment, like this was around the time when interest rates started going up, you know, across the, the globe, we saw customers looking to optimize their spend. And we've been seeing two different factors here. So the first is that, you know, when customers look at their existing, um, you know, workloads running on Elastic, they're trying to find ways to optimize that expense. And we're actually leaning in, we're helping them doing it, to do it, because fundamentally, you know, this is this is the point in time when you want to always be helping your customers. We are a very customer-centric company, and if a customer is looking to optimize their spend, we lean in on it. At the same time, we will have the conversation with the customer on, hey, you can clearly see the amazing total cost of ownership that you get by um, leveraging Elastic's platform. What else can you help? Can we help you with that you might be doing on somebody else's technology that isn't as flexible? that doesn't give you the ability to optimize cost and expense the way we do. And that's helping us bring more and more workloads onto Elastic to consolidate for you know, use cases like observability, security, different search use cases. So we've been seeing customers make larger and larger commitments and multi-year commitments onto our platform. But the near-term optimizations are resulting in the revenue trending in a way but we know for a fact that as these workloads continue to grow and come onto our platform, consumption will ramp up. And as consumption ramps up, we know that we're going to do incredibly well. So we're taking so, market so share. Basically, in this you've market. got a, a slowdown in the top line growth. It's still growing at double digits, but slowdown in the top line growth. But maybe the average revenue per customer is setting itself up to be higher to help reaccelerate that revenue growth. Yeah, these large commitments turn into revenue in time, right? So we are a purely consumption-based model. So we recognize revenue when, uh, not when customers make commitments, but when customers consume those commitments. But, you know, these commitments are the, the uh, leading indicators that give us that confidence of the health of the business and the strength of the business. And is that what's measured in, in your RPOs and your remaining performance obligations? Yeah, RPOs are one of the, the factors uh, that actually show those kinds of customer commitments. 
Uh, and, you know, even when we look at our, our current growth rate. Because your RPOs are right? trending up and it looks good. That's right. That's right. Um, and even in our current growth rate um, in Q4, uh, you know, we, we delivered 19% uh, constant currency growth. Um, and the, the count of customers that's now spend over a million dollars uh, ACV with us, as well as customers that spend uh, over 100K with us uh, on an annual basis has been growing very nicely. So all the indicators, the forward-looking indicators in the business give us a lot of confidence about the, the health and the long-term prospects. Let me ask you one final thing here um, uh, about you're, you're in San Francisco where I normally am and I will be back. I'm just visiting Rochester, New York, as you mentioned. Um, the uh, There's been a lot of news about this being downtown and I've been downtown in San Francisco for, you know, decades. Um, it's, in a, it's in a hard place right now. And uh, there's a lot of talk about a doom loop of San Francisco of, of companies leaving and then there's nobody, there, people on the streets and then there are fewer restaurants and there's fewer people in the street and that makes more companies want to leave and and that that the how the hollowing out of downtown San Francisco um, uh, has been very active. Why are you still there? Why are you still bringing your employees there? So a uh, couple of things. I'll give you my personal view on this, but I'll also I think first I should tell you a little bit about Elastic from this perspective uh, that will give you some color on our employees and our offices and the model that we have. So we are by design from birth, a uh, remote first company. Uh, we've always been distributed. So, you know, we have uh, about around 3000 employees, but we are distributed in uh, almost 45 countries around the world. Uh, and we do not require um, our, you know, generally we do not require our, our employees to come into offices, but wherever we have large concentrations of employees, we tend to have small shared spaces. So our office in San Francisco is a shared space. I don't have a, an office per se. I'll come and squat on any desk that's available. No, we heard and some noise in the background at the beginning of the interview. Yes, yes, yes. I know there are people around you. That's, that's just the model, right? And it works incredibly well. We figured out how to make remote work um, happen successfully as a company you know, 11 years ago. And that's been the model from day one. It's not something that was forced on us because of the pandemic. Um, so the San Francisco office just happens to be one of the many offices that we have around the world. They're all small shared spaces. Now, personally, in my opinion, the demise of San Francisco has been uh, uh, has been you know just massively overhyped. I've been living in San Francisco for the last twenty years. I've seen multiple ups and downs. I think what is happening right now is a challenge for the city. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but personally, I feel that there are very few cities in the world that can match San Francisco both for its amazing natural beauty uh, and the fact that it tends to attract people who are truly innovative, truly interested in, you know, sort of challenging the status quo when it comes to technology. Um, and I'm just a big believer in San Francisco. I think it's going to bounce back. It's not going to make any difference to Elastic just because of the way we are set up. But uh, as a citizen of San Francisco, I'm betting on San Francisco. I'm 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 with you a hundred percent. I just I I I was I have no idea how you were going to answer that question. Maybe you're moving next week, but but uh, I'm glad you're not. And uh, yeah, I think there's nothing like uh, the life of a great American city um, uh, and and the things that happen to people when they're in cities in contact with each other, strangers and people we know. Um, the community is a special thing. You are too, Ash. Thank you for it, Ash Kalkarni, the, the CEO of Elastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, coming up next on the uh, Drill Down the Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot more about Elastic right after this. 
The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage to connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And help us get the word out about the Drill Down podcast. If a friend asks you what podcast you listen to, tell them, I listen to the Drill Down. I don't know why, but I listen to the Drill Down. We're grateful for your time. I think your friends would be grateful for the recommendation. And indeed, you can leave a review for us on Apple, iTunes, or on uh, Spotify. Let the world know what you like about the Drill Down Podcast. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the drill down bite. The one number that tells us a whole lot, Isaac Elastic. Absolutely interesting. Yeah, very. AI very. at the heart of what they're doing these days. Cool stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, looking at that slowing growth rate uh, on their top line of the revenues, um, it, it uh, belays a little bit the fact that, belies the fact that they're, they're uh, I mentioned their RPOs, the remaining performance obligations. That number is actually rising uh, and has been rising uh, at an increasing rate the last couple of uh, uh, quarters. Um, and I thought the number, there, you know, so they grew the top line at 19% last year of, of revenues. Well, they're, uh, that, the bite, the one number tells us a whole lot, is the growth rate of their RPOs. And uh, as I mentioned, the growth rate has increased each of the last two quarters. That growth rate in the last quarter was 17% in constant currency. So when they're growing the top line at 19% and their RPOs at 17%, it's good but not great. But it kind of shows you uh, that they're starting to, to kick things up. A little bit faster. Yeah, I, th- I felt like he has his finger on the pulse of what's going on at the company. So, and he sounded very, very confident and not in a manufacturer way. All right, well, you've been listening to Drill Down Podcast. Isaac Webster's our executive producer. I'm Corey Johnson. Ben Wilson's our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down's a production of the Business Podcast Network. <laughs>